0: to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Toward the end of his life, Henry Ford was talking to a young kid by the name of John Darlinger, and more about him later in the program. Henry was telling the kid how great his education had been when he was a boy in a single-room schoolhouse. The kid listened to this stuff and then said, But sir, these are different times. There is the modern age, and, and Henry cut him off before he could finish. Young you... man, I invented the modern age. Now, I know if you're like me, you're thinking, What an arrogant asshole. But the problem was, he was right, and what a character Henry Ford was. Henry Ford was an outstanding industrial genius and an outstanding weirdo. He hated cows. In all seriousness, he said, The cow must go. He believed the Jews had invented jazz as part of a race-wide campaign to corrupt and then dominate America. In 1915, he charted an ocean liner before America had entered the Great War, filled it with intellectuals and journalists, sailed for Europe with the aim, as the New York Times headline announced, Great War to End, Christmas Day, Ford to Stop It. He famously said that history was bunk, and then he spent the last part of his life building a vast museum devoted to American history, on some empty acreage in Dearborn, Michigan, near his main Ford factory, His picture was on Adolf Hitler's desk. He was Adolf's pin-up boy. Henry Ford was born on 30 July 1863 in Greenfield Township, Michigan. He was born just a few weeks after the decisive Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania that marked the beginning of the end for the southern states of America in the American Civil War. Henry's dad owned a large farm. Henry had to help on the farm and he found that something that he didn't really enjoy. He wanted to try and reduce the physical complexity of it. In 1878, when he was just 15, his father gave him a pocket watch. Henry pulled it apart, put it back together again, and then he started to make money repairing people's watches around the area. He built his first steam engine that same year. The next year he got his first job, working as an apprentice machinist in Detroit for three years. He went back home to the farm, got a job with Westinghouse as a steam engine repairman. In 1888, at the age of 25, he married Clara Bryant. The marriage lasted for 60 years, the whole of his life. Clara was the rock behind Henry, and he called her The Believer. In 1891... Henry returned to Detroit and got a job with a man he idolized, Thomas Edison. He started out humbly enough as a night engineer, but five years later he was their chief engineer. Years later, for his Museum of American History, Henry wanted Edison's old laboratory as an exhibit. He bought the building, had it uprooted, and moved to his museum together with seven carloads of New Jersey dirt on which the building had stood. While he was working at Edison's he developed a vehicle that he called the Quadricycle. It had four bike wheels, a light buggy frame and it was powered by a two-cylinder four horsepower gasoline engine. He sold the first one he built for $200 and that funded him to start other projects. He left Edison's in 1903 with his life taking a turn that would see the whole world changed forever. The Ford Motor Company was launched with a coal dealer called Alexander Malcolmson as his partner. Other people were making cars then. They were making them for the luxury end of the market. So in 1907, a Packard Grey Wolf two-seater sports car cost $10,000. A nice suburban house at the same time sold for around $2,000. But Henry didn't want to go down that road, as it were. In 1908, Henry launched the sort of car he wanted to be making, the Model T. It sold for $825. Henry wanted everyone to be able to buy his car, and they could And they did. Within a few months after launch, orders for his car swamped the capacity of his company to build them. Henry found a way to overcome the production problems. He set up the first assembly line. The year was 1913. At Ford's assembly lines, workers stood still. Each performed one small motion, tightening three screws, twisting on a hubcap, as the developing car rolled past. This was the first true mass production line. Until then, the employees had moved around from one task to the next. A lot of time was lost. By the end of the line for the Ford T, one car was rolling off the production line every minute. In 1914, Henry doubled his workers' wages to the then unheard-of sum of $5. This let the same people who built the cars, be able to afford to buy them. The destination of those moving lines became clear, mass consumption, the middle class, the modern age. In 1926, he reduced the working week from 48 hours to 40 hours. By 1918, one half of the cars in the United States were made by Ford. In 1919, Henry and his son Edsel bought out the minority shareholders. Ford was the only company of a similar size whose shares were not traded on the stock exchange. Ford only went to the stock exchange in 1957. This gave Henry a lot of advantages over his competitors and exposed one of the things that he hated. The next major step for Ford was opening up the Ford River Rouge factory. Vehicles made there were built with parts sourced from a supply line entirely owned by Ford. Because Ford was owned by the Ford family, it did what no other company listed on the stock exchange could do. It reinvested profits back into manufacturing. It had no shareholders to please and no dividends to pay. When Ford said it put production over profit, it meant it. While General Motors was putting back about 52% of its profits into manufacturing, Ford was putting back 99.99%. Ford said that he rejected the idea of running his company for the shareholders. He rejected the profit motive as the force that drove his business. He said his business was there to produce for consumption and not profit or speculation. His take on the relationship between capital and labor was unique. He said that in his view it was utterly foolish for capital and labor to think of themselves as groups. They are partners. Given Hitler's admiration for Henry Ford, and more about that shortly, His ideas were taken up by Albert Speer, the gifted architect who turned himself to improving German armament production during the latter part of World War II. He brought about a miracle. One of the keys to his miracle was to ensure that labor and management had regular meetings which perfectly synchronized what they were doing so that both labour and management were working passionately towards the same goal of realising their full potential. This was the model that Henry Ford had started. Most of the Western powers continued with the old model of confrontational industrial relations, but in many ways they weren't nearly as successful as what Henry Ford and then Albert Speer were. In 1918, Henry Ford purchased his hometown newspaper, The Dearborn Independent. A year and a half later, he began publishing a series of articles about a vast Jewish conspiracy infecting America. There were 91 articles in the series. The Dearborn Independent was distributed through the Ford Network in America. Some dealers would put a copy of the latest The Dearborn Independent in your new car when it was delivered to you. Ford had those anti-Semitic articles bound into four volumes which were called the International Jew. He distributed half a million copies to his vast Ford network of dealerships and subscribers. As one of the most famous men in America, Henry Ford legitimized these racial ideas that otherwise would have been given very little airing. Henry Ford also republished another famous book at the time called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was what today we'd call fake news. It was originally written in Russia. It claimed that there was an international Jewish conspiracy. It told the story of a group of Jews getting together and planning everything bad that had happened in the world. The Great War, the Great Depression, you name it. The world was controlled by this little cabal of Jews. The Dearborn Independent republished this fake book, believing that it was real. The Hammer, a Volkish Nazi folk, the Aryan race, printing house, published right-wing racist stories, and it translated Henry Ford's International Jew into German. The first volume of De International jüde appeared in Germany in the summer of 1921. By 1925, Hammer was advertising the 23rd edition of the two-volume work by the eminent American industrialist and social politician Henry Ford. In 1925, Ford Motor set up shop in Germany to avoid massive German import duties on cars. At first, they set up in Berlin, and then in 1933, Ford built a large plant in Cologne, which became its headquarters in Germany. But with the worldwide economic depression, the Great Depression, biting, the factory was closed just a few weeks after it opened. But fate was about to change the fortunes of Ford in Germany, with the appointment of Adolf Hitler as the new Chancellor in 1933. Henry Ford had a great admirer and did his book, *De Internationale Jude*, the International Jew, come out in its German translation at exactly the right time. One of its early readers in Germany was a former German army corporal named Adolf Hitler. In 1921, he became chairman of the newly formed National Socialist Party, the Nazi Party. In Mein Kampf, written in 1923, Hitler singled Henry out for praise. He said, It is Jews who govern the stock exchange forces of the American Union. Every year makes them more and more the controlling masters of the producers in a nation of 120 millions. Only a single great man, Ford, to the fury of still maintains full independence. After World War II, during the Nuremberg Trials, Balder von Schirach said, The decisive anti-Semitic book which I read at that time, and the book which influenced my comrades, was Henry Ford's book, The International Jew. I read it, and I became an anti-Semite. In those days, this book made a great impression on my friends and myself because we saw in Henry Ford the representative of success and also the representative of aggressive social policy. Hitler admired Henry so much that he even kept a life-sized portrait of Henry Ford in his office. Right next to his desk, Hitler said, I regard Henry Ford as my inspiration. Ernest Leibold, the German secretary of Ford, was a German-American. He'd been a close confidant of Henry's since 1910. He was also a very keen supporter of the Nazi Party. On 31 January 1938, Liebold wrote to Otto Meisner, the chief of staff at Hitler's chancellery, on the fifth anniversary of Hitler coming to power. It is five years ago today that the present German Fuhrer became German Chancellor, and the past five years have seen a definite advance in German progress. It is for this reason that I am writing to express my congratulations with the hope that the progress you are making may continue. On 30 July 1938, on Henry's 75th birthday, German diplomats, on behalf of the Fuhrer, awarded Henry Ford the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, at the Ford Dearborn factory. This was the highest ranking of this award given to any American. IBM and General Motors' key executive people had been given the award, but a lower ranking. Henry was special. Ford Germany, which changed its name to Ford Werk, was an enthusiastic supporter of Adolf Hitler. For Hitler's birthday in April 1939, the company made a gift to him of 35000 reichmarks the in-house magazine of ford published a poem in praise of hitler and on its front page was a portrait of the fuhrer in april 1941 an issue of the ford in-house paper at roughly the high point of the third reich's military victories a photo of a beaming Adolf Hitler visiting German soldiers on the front lines. The caption read, The management of the Ford Werk salutes our Führer with grateful heart, honesty and allegiance and as before, pledges to cooperate in his life's work achieving honour, liberty and happiness for greater Germany and indeed for all peoples of Europe. After the infamous Kristallnacht Kristallnacht attack on Jews all over Germany in 1938, and even after America went to war with Germany in December 1941, Henry refused to return the Grand Cross of the German Eagle Award. Ford earned huge revenues by producing war materials for the Third Reich. A U.S. report prepared in 1945, after the war was over, said that the German Ford factories had served as an arsenal of Nazism with the consent of the Ford head office in Dearborn. Ford America's cooperation with the Nazis continued until at least August 1942, eight months after America went to war with Germany. Ford executives in America were active In encouraging the French Ford factory in Vichy, France, the rump of France that was left under somewhat independent French rule after the Germans conquered that country, to cooperate with the Germans. And boy, were they successful. The American executives of Ford said that Ford was confiscated by the Nazis, and they had no control over what it did. But other accounts tell a different story. Sales of Ford in Germany increased by more than 50% between 1938 and 1943. The value of the Ford plant in Germany more than doubled during the war. By 1941, Ford stopped manufacturing civilian vehicles and was only making vehicles for the German armed forces. In May 1941, the leader of the Nazi party in Cologne sent a letter to the Ford factory thanking plant management for helping assure us of victory in the present struggle and for demonstrating the willingness to cooperate in the establishment of an exemplary social state. Of the 350,000 trucks used by the motorised German army in 1942, roughly a third were built at the Ford factory. When American troops landed at Normandy on D-Day, Ford trucks were prominent in supplying the Wehrmacht, the German armed forces, and not something that did much for the morale of the American troops. The Cologne Ford plant was bombed by the Allies more than once. While Ford was enthusiastically working for the victory of the German fatherland, it was showing less enthusiasm to help the Allied war effort against Germany. Before America was officially in the war, Ford resisted demands from President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill for it to increase its war production to help England. The Nazi government was grateful for Ford's help in this regard. Heinrich Albert, on behalf of the German government, wrote to Charles Sorensen, the Ford production chief at Dearborn, in July 1940. The letter said, the dementi of Mr. Henry Ford concerning war orders for Great Britain has greatly helped us. Most foreign companies were taken over by the Nazi government during the war, but the Ministry of Economics reported that there could be no doubt about the complete incorporation as regards personnel, organization, and production system of Fordwerk into the German national economy in particular into the German armaments industry. During the war, the German Ford work put aside the profits that had been earned by the American parent company. They were paid across after the war. Although foreign companies didn't have to use slave labour, Ford Werk did, so that it could maximise production. By 1943, half of all Ford Work's workforce was foreign forced labour, including French, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belgians. In August 1944, the SS brought 15 prisoners from the Buchenwald concentration camp to work at Ford. These slave labourers worked for 12 hours a day with a 15-minute break. They were given below subsistence levels of food. Ford certainly did what it could to help Adolf Hitler win the war, But it wasn't enough. So let's get over to the other side of the pond, as the people who shared the Atlantic call it, and look at one of the most amazing production line stories ever. An accomplishment that I think only Ford could ever have achieved at the time. On 26 May 1940, President Roosevelt made the most amazing announcement ever. Had he gone mad? in the next 12 months, because the war that is going on in Europe is going to engulf America too, we have to make 50,000 combat aircraft. That was more planes than America had made since the Wright brothers' flight at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina in 1903. Then he said he wanted the aviation industry to back up every year After that, to make the same number of aircraft. When he made his broadcast, the Americans had just 3,000 warplanes, and most of those were out of date. One of the key types of planes the Americans wanted was long-range four-engine heavy bombers. One of them was the Consolidated Liberator B-24 bomber. The War Department wanted Ford to be one of the manufacturers of this bomber. Now, the average car at the time had 15,000 parts and weighed 1,360 kilograms. The B-24 was 21 meters long. It had 450,000 parts, 360,000 rivets in 550 different sizes, and it weighed 16,000. 330 kilograms. No one had ever produced anything this big on an assembly line. Everyone knew that wasn't possible. Ford's production chief, Charles Sorensen, the man congratulated by the Nazis, Carstein Charlie, knew that he could make such a production line work. He'd supervised Ford's River Rouge factory, which made 10,000 cars a day from raw materials to finished products. One car a minute. In January 1941, Sorensen went to the consolidated factory at San Diego with Edsel Ford, then the president of Ford, Henry's only son. And what he saw of the consolidated production methods didn't impress him, not one little bit. He saw them making the bomber as a custom-made product. No two planes were exactly the same. He and Edsel went back to their hotel, the magical Coronado Hotel, where Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, after the war, filmed the greatest classic movie comedy ever, Some Like It Hot, a great old-style American hotel. Sorensen stayed up all night and cracked it. The government wanted to break up production through a number of different plants. Sorensen bluntly said to them, We'll build the whole plane or nothing. And we'll make a new B-24 every hour. Yeah, as if. And what a shamozzle it was trying to get the plans to build this aircraft. The first thing Ford found out was that the plans for the plane weren't complete. For Ford to build it their way, they had to build 1,600 unique machine tools. Parts had to be ground to a tolerance of thousands of a centimetre, and that had to be repeated over and over and over again. Sorensen built a new factory for this job at a place called Willow's Run. Now remember that name because it became the butt of cruel jokes when things didn't go as smoothly as Ford had hoped. Albert Kahn, who designed the Rouge River plant, was called in to design this new factory. Construction began in April 1941, and the factory was completed three days before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour, just over six months. The factory was 915 metres long, 390 metres wide at its widest point. The factory's internal area was 33 hectares, Its floor area was 20% bigger than the floor area of the entire Empire State Building. Getting production up and running proved difficult. It was 12 months before the first 56 planes were made and they weren't the best quality. The joke made of the name where the factory was located, Willow's Run, was changed by its critics to Will It Run. It didn't look encouraging. Getting people to work in the factory wasn't easy. The factory was a long way from Detroit. People didn't want to spend that long traveling. A lot of workers were being drafted into the American Armed Forces too. Housing had to be built for the workers. Most of the workers had never built a plane in their life. Ford built the Aircraft Apprentice School near the factory to train farmhands, secretaries, Housewives, school teachers, and grocery clerks in how to build a massive four engined bomber. 8,000 students a week completed the course. If you're woke and you love diversity, well, you found it at the Willows Run factory. Hell, you probably even know the name of one of the workers at the factory rivet gun operator Rosemary Will from Pulaski County, Kentucky. They pulled her to one side one day and used her in a promotional film that showed the women of America getting behind the war effort. Everyone knows her. She's Rosie the Riveter. 200,000 Southerners flocked to Michigan looking for factory jobs. After the horrors of the Great Depression, hundreds of them bought their first pair of shoes ever when they arrived. By mid-1944, the factory was turning out one plane every hour, just like Sorensen had boasted. The Ford plant alone produced as many B-24 Liberators as three other factories that were also building the same plane. With the end of the war production stopped, the factory closed down. It was reopened from time to time to put to other uses. Willow Run became an airport. A former B-24 bomber pilot in the 376th Bombardment Group opened up America's first airport car rental business there. His name was Warren Avis. His business today is known as Avis Rent-A-Car. Right now, today, the factory is being used in a joint effort by a number of companies to develop driverless cars. So the factory still continues to have a relevance. Towards the end of his life, Will Rogers, a famous American figure and wise man, said to Henry, without a hint of his customary folksiness, It'll take a hundred years to know whether you've helped us or hurt us, but you certainly didn't leave us where you found us. Oh yeah, John Dallinger, I said I'd tell you, who he was. Well, Henry's wife of 60 years was faithful to him, but it seems that Henry took a mistress, who he was faithful to his whole life as well. Her name was Evangeline Cote, a lively spirited French-Canadian lass. She was exceptionally well looked after by Henry and bore him a son, John Dallinger. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided Tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am, probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kaldsberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.